Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Ray Ostrander, is currently the managing director and founder of Green Thumb REIT. Prior to founding the REIT, the Real Estate Investment Trust, he was the managing partner on value-add projects in some of the most challenging real estate markets in Canada and the U.S. He's also one of the most engaging and sought-after real estate trainers in the country today. Over the past decade, he could often be found performing for Robert Kiyosaki and Scott McGilvery or hosting real estate expos and providing consulting for syndicators and project managers. His story is actually a fascinating one. And like many of us in our younger years, he was encouraged to pursue a good education, but found that obtaining a master's degree in theology was not quite providing the financial return on investment he was looking for. While he enjoyed his work in churches and nonprofit organizations, he had to do something to make ends meet. And out of necessity, the entrepreneur was born. On our upcoming podcast interview right now, I've asked Ray to share a bit of his story and the key experiences and influences that have brought him to the place he is today. And without any further delays, let's get this show started. Ray Ostrander, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank, listen, buddy, thanks for taking the time to uh, join me on the show. Uh, I know you're feeling a little under the weather, uh, so you know we'll we'll just keep it tight. All right. <laughs> okay. So, Ray, you know I want to open always, and uh, excited to have you on the show. You've got a huge history in the world of investing in real estate and building, you know, uh, real estate portfolios, investors, all of that. So let's start with the place that I like to start for our listeners, which is when somebody says, hey, Ray, what do you do? 
What's your answer these days? Well, we, uh, we founded a REIT about a year ago, and uh, we've been just continuing to buy assets in the U.S. I've done limited partnerships in the past, but we finally, we had a lot of interest in people being able to utilize their RSPs and TFSAs. So it just seemed like it made sense to go with a REIT structure. And that's what we're doing. Same stuff, C-class assets and secondary and tertiary markets, just yield focused, really uh, I'm kind of a one-trick pony. That's what I do. So let's not, you know, oversimplify what you do. You've got a REIT going on. You've been that the past year, but leading up to all of that, uh, your background in as an investor is quite extensive, and you are really specialized now in U.S. markets and specifically some kind of what some would call out of flavor markets or kind of <laughs> weird or odd. I don't know how you'd want to say that, but so get into it a little bit more detail than that in terms of U.S. multifamily. Give me some context of scope, you know, of sure. the projects that you're investing in and, and how that all works, comes together, uh, Ray. Sure. So how about horrible, horrible markets? Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and my, my focus has always been on asset uh, valuation, in, intrinsic value. What do these produce? And, you know, our last project, the big one that we did recently was in Gary, Indiana. It's probably one of the worst markets in the United States. So for us to be able to go in there, we're buying those units at $30,000 a unit. Now, we turn around and we're able to sell them for just under $50,000 a unit. That's great for us. And it, it wasn't our plan. Our plan is always to go in and, and, and take a property that's underperforming, get stabilize it, and then refinance it pull the money out and put it into other projects just to improve our, our overall leverage returns. But people, you know, have been spending a lot of money on underperforming assets these days. So we, uh, we exited that and looking for more stuff. I like markets like Detroit or Toledo or Cleveland or, I don't know, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There's just tons of stuff out there that people don't want to be in. And uh, I think that goes back to our experience in Canada. When, when the markets made sense, we were investing in places like Hamilton 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, Windsor or Chatham, Sarnia, these types of markets. And people said we were crazy. You know, I was investing in some markets, you know, before, you know, Don had talked about how great those markets were. I think he's, he's just extremely great at being able to understand fundamentals. I'm not. I look at cash flow and eventually people chase yield. When everything else goes up, great. If it doesn't go up, I'm good with the cash flow on those projects. So, What's important to me? Do I do I want to go into a place that's going down in population and seeing you know people moving out? Like that doesn't make sense either. But like when we looked at places like Gary, Indiana, the question was, is it stable? Anyone who's still in Gary, Indiana, they're not going anywhere. So what does the five year you know what does the five year set of statements look like? What do the T twelves look like over five years? And I think we can justify that what's been happening over the past five years. What's going to happen over the next five years? And that's a pretty good indication for me, especially when you factor in inflation. And we've always done well that way. So that's, I mean, I don't mean to simplify it, but I think that is the simple answer. I think this is not that complicated. I think the reason why people don't do it is because it's not sexy. You know, the properties are ugly. <laughs> <laughs> ugly properties. Well, listen, Ron Legrand was a specialist in uh, by right. ugly, and uh, he did exceptionally well. But you know, here's a question I have for you in all of this: is that you know, let's say Gary, Indiana. I mean, why would Gary, Indiana, even be on your radar as a market or any of the other markets? Because, like you say, you buy in these kind of horrible places. Detroit makes sense because it's a name. I mean, Gary, Indiana. I, I mean, I'm not exceptionally well traveled, but 
It doesn't pop up in my, if somebody uh, says, Hey, you're going to Gary this weekend. I, I have no idea, but my, you know, so how do you find these markets in that context, Ray? You know, and I work with a lot of brokers who have stuff in odd places. And look, when people don't want to buy in that market, it gives me tremendous leverage from, from a negotiation standpoint and not just price terms, as we, you know, I mean, this is a fairly straightforward approach to, to acquisitions. So when I can go in and no one else is, is really interested in these in these projects, sure makes my life a lot easier when I'm on the buy side. So that's where I start. And then I will look at the market and the sub-market. So for Gary, we were in Gary proper, but we were in a part of Gary that was really separated from the downtown core, which, you know, it's it's really challenging in some of those spots. We were in a spot called Miller, you know, Miller Beach, which is what everyone wanted to call it. They wanted to kind of separate that from Gary. And there was, you know, some million dollar homes right next to our property. And, you know, we had to do a lot in terms of bringing in some security and making a commitment to really bringing up the, the safety at that property. So, you know, you spend that money and that was a spot that would work. And at $30,000 a unit, when we're buying it and your, your average rent we went in was probably about 675, 700 a unit. I don't mean to say, how can you go wrong? But how can you go wrong? Like the math it, it, works. The math works. And so I'm not nearly as concerned about the market. And that's a bit of a departure from some of the great work that you guys do at Rain. And I think combining those two things are fantastic. But when I go into a really horrible market, the seller knows it, the agents and brokers know it, everyone knows it. So we, we get the deal, the intrinsic value of these assets. Not the future value. This is not a speculative play. These are cash flow plays. So you're really going in, for example, you're finding a building that's kind of maybe marginal in terms of where the location is. It's probably a C or a, you know, a B minus or, and you're, exactly. and you're, and then you're coming in, you're bringing it, you're, you're, you're to your point, you're paying 30 a door for it. You might put what, five or 7,500 bucks a door into it. Precisely. But yeah. What we're doing now, it's going to be 10 to 12. And it all depends on when we test the market. Sure. We got an idea of what we're going to spend. Yeah. Then we're going to test the market. And yeah. what we've been finding is the demand for these types of units is amazing. So if you don't need to spend the money now, don't spend the money. That's the number one rule we see when people are working on their, their real estate projects. They overspend. For what? There's got to be a direct line between every dollar you spend and revenue for me. Not future value. I'm, I'm not a a value add guy in that capacity. I get an end user might look at it and want to buy it because it looks nicer, but the intrinsic value I think is tied to income. So you're looking at then going in, upgrading that particular property, bringing it up and then increasing rents at some point and, uh, you know, improving cap rates and doing all the things that you're doing now. Are you going to exit every time or are you going to hang on to that property sometimes? I would have loved to have hang on to all the property we sold in the last two years. But when the market goes up the way it has, and you buy a property at a seven or eight percent cap rate, and you can sell it at a four, it doesn't cash flow leverage, you know, highly at a four. Right. So we exited, and, and that was tough for me, you know, to be patient and, and sit on the sidelines in an inflationary environment. That was challenging for me to do. We haven't purchased a property in almost three years, but I looked at it and said, I'm just not interested in investing my own money in projects that are that thin. I'd rather sit on the sidelines. And the investors I work with, they tend to obviously share my perspective or they wouldn't be with us. Well, I think it's, dude, I think it's genius. I mean, you're really, number one, you've got the patience. Number two, you're going into these markets. And to your point, 
within these markets, there's always going to be motivated vendors, which then gives you the opportunity to negotiate a way better deal or a great deal in in many cases, because you're helping somebody out of probably a problem that they've got. And uh, you're being able to take advantage of it, leverage it, support, you know, the growth of what you're trying to do within your REIT, as well as support what you're and and provide what you're committing to your your uh, investors. So, I mean, I love that particular thought process. And I think it's, I've got to be honest with all the guys that I know that are investing in multifamilies in the US, you're the only one that are investing in multifamilies in the US in places that I really haven't heard of. (laughs) Aside from perhaps Detroit and a couple of, you know, Windsor, you know, or whatever you mentioned in that regard. But my point is, is that, you know, it's an interesting business model, if if you understand what I'm saying. I do. And I think that if I could add one thing, I think what's really important what i realized through this process is we're just not typical with what we do a lot of syndicators and general partners they really focus on fee generation which we get lots of fees i love our fees don't get me wrong but my big payout is in the back end we're performance driven so we want these to do well so the property that we took over that one i was describing to you and gary uh, i believe the previous owners were looking at a situation where they couldn't increase rent without putting up more capital well, they're already into this thing. What are they going to do? Raise more capital? That's not easy to go ahead and do. So what do they do? They liquidate it at a higher price than what they paid for it because of inflation. They generate fees and they're out of a problem. I, I, I was amazed when I heard how infrequently ownership or high-level management came out to visit those assets. And, and you know all too well with the, the all the failures we're seeing in some of these different investment you know, opportunities that exist out there, the failure is management. The failure is the people. I'm the risk. You know, so what's different about what we do in these markets? You know what makes a difference? Treating people with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Treating all of our residents as if they are our most valuable customers, which they are. Think of us one third of their, on average, one third of their, of their revenue, one third of their income every single month they pay us. Imagine if you ran a business, you run a golf town and someone comes in and spends one third of their income every month with you. You know what I mean? You treat them well. You treat them well. And and, and it doesn't take much. It's it's attitude. And unfortunately, at the low end, whether you're in a C-class, but even as you get into the high end, a lot of people just aren't great at giving customer service. So we focus on that. And as a result, we're able to attract more people to our properties. And people are excited to be there. People are happy to pay a little bit more rent when they're treated well. It's amazing what people are willing to do, you know? Well, I think, too, and I mean, at the end of the day, you're going in and you're investing in those properties, you know, and I don't care. Well, I shouldn't say I don't care. My experience is it really doesn't matter what level of tenant you have. So whether I'm talking about income levels, at the end of the day, there is pride of the what a place you call home and whether you're bringing friends over or family members over you want some pride in most people will want some pride in their living conditions and and the place they call home so if you're yeah. upgrading and making it look good i mean ultimately that supports them keeps them as tenants longer which is to your point is really just looking after your clients yeah i don't think uh, i don't think that a lot of the the residents that i talk to I think maybe less than 10% were unreasonable. And I, I don't think that's any different in A class or C class. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. So I, I really think it's just the greatest way to, to be able to treat people well. And you know what? You can also, it's a bit of a feel good thing. In these markets, you can do a lot with a little. You can hire people locally and they're less expensive. You know, like it's not as, it's a depressed market. So all of our costs for labor, 
go down. And we can do small things like buy four old computers and open up a, a lab for kids to go and do schoolwork. I mean, it's an amenity. It costs us nothing. But people appreciate it, you know, like mm-hmm. sponsoring father-daughter dances. It's just, it's peanuts, but it means a lot to the community. And quite frankly, we get more in return for doing that stuff. Like, yeah, it, it's... And, 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 and there's some power in creating community in those buildings because then there is the pride within that place you call home and within the community. And they start having each other's backs, especially in times like we've been going through the past couple of years. And I was going to ask you, you know, based on what you're seeing is happening in the U.S., I mean, it varies. I mean, U.S. is huge and it varies from state to state and economy to economies really shift and change. And, you know, given what's happened over the past couple of years and where things are going with inflation and uh, rising rates and quantitative uh, tightening, not easing, uh, quanti- right. you know, what, you know, so what, what are you experiencing on that U.S. side of things? Are things getting tighter? Are you seeing, uh, we talked a little bit earlier offline where, you know, you're starting to see rents go up quite dramatically in some of these areas as well. What's, what's, what are you seeing on the U.S. side of the border, even relative to what you might be seeing in Canada here? Yeah, prices are already dropping dramatically. I mean, I think that, you know, as of today, which is uh, June 28th, we saw three three weeks ago, that market turned on a dime. And we saw prices start to drop. They're down 10 to 15%. Now, some of that's because of the, the frenzy that was out there. Mm-hmm. But I love now that I can put in an offer and there's no one else looking for, you know, to get in on it. I love that I'm sitting there and we're looking for financing and we look good. We don't have a lot of stuff on our balance sheet that, that's troublesome. So it, it's a good environment for us. And I, I think that's one thing that, you know, the doom and gloom that's out there, I don't get it. If you're investing for future value, now I get it. But that's not what I invest for. And like we were talking earlier, if price per unit is going down and income is stable or going up with inflation, this is exactly the environment that I thrive in. And I don't know why people aren't interested in it. I think people are scared of the type of product that I deal with. And I don't think there's any reason to be. I think you can learn to do it effectively. But, uh, you know, I, re- I lived on the property in Gary. You know, I loved it. I loved the people. You know, we had security. You know, they, they took good care of me and made sure that I was okay. But it wasn't bad at all. You know, you treat people well. Like you said, you develop a community. And then people watch. It, it's, it becomes self-policing. Sure. That's what we need. That's the whole way you can revitalize a community and stabilize it. I love it. Now, Ray, let's go back a little bit, you know, and let's get to how you got to where you are today. I mean, you've uh, been in this game a long time. Uh, You've coached, you've taught, you've invested, you've invested in Canada. Now you've kind of gone to the U.S. But give me a little bit of background in terms of how you find yourself this many years in the investing world and uh, take me back. Where did you get started and how did that all kind of start moving forward for you? Yeah, well, first of all, way back then, I just didn't have any income. I was working uh, in churches. I'd done, you know, a master's in theology and it doesn't pay real well, you know? And my my old joke was I could either work in churches or McDonald's and both of them paid about the same. So (laughs) um, I needed something else. Like I had an idea that if we were going to have kids and I, I felt like there was nothing wrong with going out and making some money. And I found that, over time, there were things I loved about working in churches and nonprofits, and there were things I hated. And I thought to myself, why don't I go and make money and just volunteer to do the things <laughs> that I love? And donate some cash when it's uh, when you have it, yeah. Yeah, or, or even the time to go sure. and spend time. Like, I loved working with youth, and I loved working with the young adults. And, 
you know, people who are excited about change. And I don't know if that's just how I'm wired. I was thinking about this before our call because I've been doing coaching and training and sales in these types of self-improvement products for years, but decades. And it's always a question to me is why are some people successful and some people aren't? And nurture versus nature, all that discussion. And I, I just think that I was naive when I started. I, uh, to give you the background, prior to me going back to school, I had some troubled teenage years. <laughs> <Didn't> <laughs> I, I think that probably puts it mildly. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's part of what helped me get back into, you know, religion and faith. It was an important part of my journey. I went to AA and I got sober at 19. And fortunately, I've been sober ever since. But the real, the real benefit to that was I was introduced to a program of action that kind of works in every scenario. And you're probably familiar with 12 steps a sure. little bit, so I, yep. I won't go into it. But I think the point of it is I learned that I had to be honest with myself. I had to assess what are my motives? What do I want? And what am I willing to pay for? What am I willing to give up for? Am I committed? And I think that when I went through that, that program in AA, it was always, hey, you know, find someone who's got what you want and listen to them. Do what they say. And I was just naive enough to think that that worked. And it did work for me. And then I went to a no money down real estate program with Russ Whitney. I got a big place in my heart for Russ Whitney. He's taken a lot of heat and maybe he's had some trouble this and that. I could care less. If he didn't show up, I wouldn't be where I am today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the things that I learned about basic investing and creative financing and structure and hustling, you know, he had a, he had a program that was, uh, he called it the million dollar, 90 day challenge, something like that. And it was instrumental for me in, in finding motivation. I wasn't motivated. I smoked too much pot. You know, so for me, I had to find a way to get motivated. And uh, the lessons that I learned between AA and some of that personal development, I just believed that the guy at the front of the room who was telling me the, the secrets of the trade, I believed it was true. And I went out and did it. And, uh, you know, today I've come to realize sometimes those people at the front of the room don't invest in real estate at all. <laughs> don't know what they're talking about at all. But I didn't know better. And so... And I was motivated. I was desperate. I needed to generate an income. I needed to make a future for our family that, you know, that we couldn't even have at that point. So that's kind of where it all started for me. And uh, I'm very grateful that I had a chance to go through that. And the personal development of, of also counseling, those things have been what's helped me to be successful, to have good psychological health, understanding what my beliefs are. And that stuff sounds like a lot of people find that to be a little hokey. But if we're not aligned with what we want and what we're doing, we just, nothing happens. Well, okay. So let's unpack this a little bit. And I still want a lot of to talk about with you, Ray, and your journey and how you got to where you are today. But this is an interesting conversation. I mean, both you and I have coached, we've both stood on stages. We've worked with thousands of real estate investors, entrepreneurs. And when it comes to investing in real estate, as complicated as it can seem, is that it's pretty pragmatic. It's, you know, the to-dos, the how-tos, the various strategies. Yes, there's some complexity to that. I'm not denying that. But ultimately, why is it that you or I can talk to a room of a couple hundred people, and out of that room, they've all heard the same conversation, and probably 10% will actually take action, move forward based on what they say they want, and or actually execute, even if they start the program or start doing something, have you cracked the code? What is the fundamental difference between the doers and the I want to doer? 
I think there's an element of desperation. I think when people or people who are in pain and that they're, they're closely associated, right? Yeah, sure. I think when people are motivated, you see some people who have no business being successful, you know, they're, they're, maybe, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to tip triple digits on the IQ scale, you know, they're, there's, but they're motivated yeah. and they get stuff done. So I think that's a huge factor. And, you know, over the time that I've had the chance to do some coaching and training, I've been amazed to see how few people act. So, you know what I did? Because once I did, so I took the training program. And I was successful immediately. I went and I bought my first property with no money down. The seller gave me all the financing and he cut me a check at closing, right? Beautiful. Like it was awesome. And I said, this is great. So you take that example and they wanted me to come out and work with them. I, I didn't realize at the time why. I, I'm a living testimonial of, of the product. Sure. And I loved it. And I just believed that everyone could do it. So eventually I'm the guy at the front of the room selling this stuff. I'm walking people through it. It's not complicated. And I'm selling the packages and I'm realizing people are spending 10 to 50 grand on the trainings. And at least in that particular program, I would say less than 10% of people ever completed all the trainings that they purchased. Can you imagine? But did they, did they have to? So here's the bigger question. If they're spending 10 to 50 grand on a program, and they don't complete the training, got it. But are they actually, are they doing a deal? Are they getting some properties into that portfolio? Are you talking about 10% are actually only having some degree of success? And of course, if you look at a bell curve, there's extremes on either side, but I've never sold a 30,000 or 50,000 or even $15,000 coaching program. And what was you, what were you seeing in terms of results? What was actually happening for you when you were, talking to these individuals? What was in their way? I don't even know what question to ask. Like I'm blown away yeah. that people could spend 50 grand on a coaching program, not complete it and or take action with it. Yeah. Well, I've come to find out that is very common, not just in, in, in the real estate space. I think people spend all kinds of money on golf equipment and don't go out and spend time in the trap or at the range. Sure. They, they think that they can spend their way into success because a lot of this comes down to our instincts. Mm -hmm. We want from an ego perspective, we want to be good at something. If we can just go ahead and buy the right driver and that'll solve the problem, that's less pain. And we, if we can afford it or justify it, we make these decisions based on really good marketing. So I, I think that it's prevalent in a lot of areas. I started buying that one in a million 90 day challenge. I talked to my, my boss at the time, Paul, and I said, Paul, you got to get me these things at a discount. I want to give them down. I didn't realize I was so naive at the time. I said, we'll give them to you. This is a great idea. So anyone who bought a package, I gave, I wanted to give them the 90-day challenge because that was what helped me. It got me motivated and focused. And, and I think my mentor was unbelievable, Mike Wilson. He's passed away. And I just got lucky. I got with a guy who forced me into my lane and said, don't deviate from this and get into six different strategies until you do one. This is a good strategy. And I think a lot of people, as things get tough, they change strategies. When things get tough there, they switch over here. Yeah. And I think it's about singleness of purpose. And I had that because I have a great sponsor in AA. Mm -hmm. So I was getting it from, from a great sponsor and, and a great mentor. And I, we talk about mentorship all the time. To me, without those guys, there's no way I would have been successful. Not even a chance. Both of us have met what we call hummingbird investors over the years, many of them. And it really is flitting from one strategy to the next, whatever seems to be the easiest or the path of resistance, least path of resistance and or the shiny thing syndrome. And it's just interesting. I, I spend a little bit of time on it only from 
you know, you're based because I want to hear from your experience. You know, I often say to, you know, members of the rain community, you know, we believe in you more than you believe in yourself often. And they don't get what I mean by that. It's just that we know that ultimately the only thing that gets in our way generally is ourselves. We are the only thing that will get in our way. And I don't have to know you to believe in you because I just have to figure out how to crack the code to get you to believe in yourself. That's, that's generally what we have discovered over the years. Yeah. I I don't think there can be any higher value when, when you're going to commit to doing training, whether it's a workout program or a real estate program is taking the time to evaluate. Is this what I want? Mm -hmm. Why do I want it? Why do I want to go to the gym? They don't want to get in shape. People get real motivated when they get divorced. They're in the gym. You know, like <laughs> it's it, the it, sign it's, that your significant other's leaving you. All of a sudden right? they want to work out. No, I, I, I joke. But anyways, <laughs> that is one of the signs apparently. Yeah. Like I, I think before we decide to commit to things, is it what we really want? Yeah. You know, I think people talk about, oh, I want to be better, more well-read. I want to speak other languages. I used to have those things on my list. They're off my list now. I don't want those things. I want to want those things. I think it'll make me look good. It's all ego based. It's both. It's, it's crap. You know something. Oh, you you know you nailed it there. And we're we're digressing in the conversation a little bit. But you know, Ray, you you nailed something there. Is that so many ego based decisions get made? And I was I think quite fortunate early on that for me. I really early on said, I don't want more stuff. I just was so shut down and I had the, the Porsches and I had the, the toys and, and for a brief period in time. And it's like, I don't want to insure it. I don't want to wash it. I don't want to clean it. I don't, I don't care. Like, you know, give me a, a decent vehicle and I'm happy. You know, like I don't need more than that. You know, Stephanie and yeah. I travel to great places and we stay in great places, but it's not, like I say, it's just, I, I, it's an interesting perspective that we gain. And sometimes, um, I see people that are making decisions only from that place. Yeah. How faulty we are as human beings. If we can begin to understand where we break down, I, I, I see us as, um, animals in, in a relatively, you know, at the high end of the hierarchy, you know, on the planet right now, I hope, Sure, <laughs> but, we hope. Uh, probably not, we hope, <laughs> but we don't always act that way. And I, I think that we have these beliefs that are ingrained in us from a millennia of conditioning and DNA, multiple millennia. So things like we believe that money is going to bring happiness. Well, I certainly believe that money can make, can help us have choices in our lives, Mm -hmm. but we still have to make choices that make sense for us. And we don't, how many of us continue to invest with our RSPs and with, you know, maybe the guy who's helping us or helped our family and we're not getting returns. Why would we do that? We know it's not working, but we keep doing it. Why? I know why now. People don't want to take responsibility for the performance of their investments. And, and I understand why. If my spouse said to me, well, you said, you know, this mutual fund was going to go well. I, I don't want to carry that. The, the, you know, our retirement rests on my decision making. Let's give it to Joe at, you know, so-and-so broker or whatever. Like, I, I understand that. The, the challenge I have is, what's the risk? What's the risk if I do nothing? And I think that's what stood out to me. It was all the psychological development. I remember a guy, Andy, he was just a great guy. He, he, he drew a chart of the Niagara Falls. And he said, look, here's the point of no return. And he said, look, I'm going to put a basket just past the point of no return, just past it. And it's got 
$3 million in there, you know, if that's your number, what you need for retirement. And uh, he said, you know, how many of you are going to go in and get it? Well, obviously, no one's going to go get it. There might be someone who thinks they're, a, you know, exceptional swimmer, you know, they're a little Phelpsy or something, but no one's going to go in after that. Now, here's something that, that still to this day resonates with me. If my daughter is in that water past the line, you can't keep me out. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's about our values. We, we, we don't really value the money, but we act like we do. So when we go after the money, what is it for? What are we going to do with it? What choices do we want to make? What, and I think it comes down to purpose. And, and, and what do we want to accomplish while we're on the planet? I don't have any great, you know, I, I don't do those things where I read what, where I write what people were going to say at me at my funeral. I won't be there, you know, and I, whatever's happens, happened. But I do think that right now I got a 15 year old and a 12 year old and I, and I love spending time with them. I love the idea that they're going to be okay in these recessionary environments because we're talking about the soft skills, understanding what people need, being of value. If you have a job and you're not making your employer's job easier, doesn't matter how great you are at analysis or data entry or whatever you're doing, we, we have to make sure we understand those soft skills. And, and for me to be able to impart that to my kids and have them involved and introduce them to the business, part of my purpose is very clear. It's, it's to pour into my kids. So that's going to change a little bit. We've talked about a lot of different things. I'd love to see people get excited about really getting serious about their real estate investing. It's not complicated, but it is a very serious commitment. And we're going to have to get serious about where our blind spots are. You can't say cash flow is the most important thing and then go out and buy a property that has negative cash flow. That's not consistent. And we see it all the time. We've got to get serious about what our objectives are and fight for them. So let's talk about something here. You know, this is kind of going off. I never know where these conversations are going to go, but I, I something there's something here we can dig into that I think is interesting. You know, you made a good point around, you know, why do people, what gets in people's way? So we do an exercise with people around time, money, knowledge, which is how much time do you have? How much money do you have? How much knowledge do you have? And so where are you in the time, money, knowledge matrix is going to actually drive some of the decisions you make on your investing journey. So if you've got limited time, you've got some money and you've got limited knowledge, where do you enter the conversation? And you're gonna have to find time to gain the knowledge to actually put that money to work. So you follow the the thought process here in terms of time, money, knowledge, and what happens, people start with the best intentions and they realize, I don't have enough time and or I have lots of time and I have, no money, and I don't have the knowledge to even know how to raise capital. So when you look at all of the different components of that matrix, you start to realize that, you know, definitely I'm not going to do a fix and flip. Definitely I'm not going to get into doing a burr. Definitely I can't take on, you know, buying a, and going to look at a buy and hold property that I have to renovate and take time to do. So you start to make decisions about your investment strategy. That's all to say this. It comes back to, for example, what you're doing, which is, okay, I've got limited time, I do have some capital, and I have a limited amount of knowledge. To me, when I'm in that scenario, the first thing I'm going to do is say, I still need to put my capital to work. We're looking at the rate of inflation in a just a bizarre economic time. And yeah. you know, as much as we want to stay liquid for all the reasons that we have to maintain some liquidity, we got to get our capital to work. Last place I want to be is, you know, in the equity market right now. I don't want to have a bunch of capital, you know 
in stocks. Uh, no. Yes, I maybe want some cryptocurrency. Yes, I probably want some precious metals. Maybe, who knows? Fine wines, art. I mean, there's so many different things now, but I look at real estate and I say, you know, I want to put my capital into real estate. So that's a long-winded scenario or background into when you're sitting down with investors and because that's what you do, you sit with investors and you look and say, okay, how are we going to put your capital to work? Here's the opportunity for you. What is some of the things that they need to consider in their own scenario? You know what I'm saying? So if you say, yeah. well, I, you know, if you want to get in on this REIT, you know, we, you know, minimum is X and, you know, if you want to put in a million bucks, great. What are the kind of questions that you're asking them? So, because I'm sure knowing you, the last thing you want is an investor that's feeling uncomfortable, over leveraged. Oh yeah. What, you know, I mean, you've got to go through a process. Yeah. Well, we're certainly, we're also heavily regulated, right? We have a third party EMD who takes an exempt market dealer who takes care of, you know, the know your client and make sure people are not over investing and that they're properly qualified. So that, that that's outside of my purview, but I make sure I spend time with people and say, like, what do you want? If you're looking for income, great. Be honest. If you tell me, well, you know, someone else is offering me 20%. Well, I can't do that for you right now. That's not what the market's going to provide. I can't reasonably set your expectation there. We're 12 to 15% right now. That's what we expect. That's a good rate of return, especially when we can provide 7% in terms of distributions. So, you know, I like what we're doing, but if you're not looking for income, we're not the right vehicle for you. And the best thing they can do is I can point them towards a developer. I don't like the risk, but if that's what they want, but I think many, many people don't know what they want, not just what they're investing with almost anything. And we don't sit down and figure that out. I mean, that's the part that baffles me is that we don't spend the time to really look at that. I've talked to many, you know, people who are raising capital. Okay. So, and they're, they're doing a reader, they're doing a, an LP or they're doing something where they're raising capital. My point is this, how often do you find that getting your investor to even read the offering, offering oh. memorandum is painful? It's like you put it in front of me, you go read this and make sure you're asking me questions. Make sure if you don't understand something, you ask. If you're listening to this and you're investing in, in REITs and uh, any, any projects and you're not reading the marketing material, even if it's 120 pages, you better get your lawyer to read it. You better understand, does this compare to other things in the marketplace? I just finished a presentation out, out in Edmonton with some investors and they were unaware. We looked right at the OM that someone had invested in. Right in the OM, on the audit statements, it shows that the product was losing money. Right on the, right, right on the statement, it shows they lose money. If they pay a, dis a distribution of 8% annually. Well, you and I both know how that works. Like, if you're paying back people, like, you're paying money out, you're paying them with their own money. Now, I don't actually have a problem with that. But you better know that you're into that situation because if those properties that they're buying in their portfolio are 95% occupied, how do you get to a place where it's profitable? I'm buying stuff that's you know 70% occupied, 60% occupied. I can get us to a place where we're profitable. We should be paying distributions from profit. If you don't read the OM and you don't see what the assets are in there, you're at your own risk. Most people are getting back their own capital. I see places that are saying all the time, it's one of the benefits. Hey, this is a tax-free distribution. Of course it is. It's your own money. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. an it is so, so interesting. Okay. 
Now, I wanted to depart from this a little bit. And I know that uh, you talk about at 19, you had some kind of self-awareness discovery. Tell me a little bit about your background, because, you know, in the context of the everyday millionaire, you know, seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary, and you've certainly qualified in all of that, Ray, how did you, you know, as a kid growing up, did you think that one day you'd be entrepreneurial? Were your parents entrepreneurial? How did you end up on this journey called really self-employed, business owner, yeah. entrepreneur? Uh, how did you, did you come out of the shoot that way? Or how did that all I, end up for you? I think so. I, I imagine I'm probably, you know, above average in terms of intelligence. I think I saw opportunities and wanted to take action on those opportunities. I think there's also a lot of fear with me. I think there's a fear of financial insecurity. And, and I don't know how much of a factor that plays, but I wanted to be able to enjoy some things. And like, I wanted to have some money and some resources so I could party. You know, I wanted to have money and resources so I could do things. And, you know, that evolved into, I wanted to have some money so I could build a family. And, and one of the best things and you can appreciate is going through some, some religious training. And, and some of that was great, but it, it helps to give us a posture where we, we can really in, embrace the idea of giving and service and you can do a lot with a little and it, it, it feels wonderful to be useful to be helpful i think that's probably why you and i kind of connect on this i love you know delivering mentoring programs i mm -hmm. love that kind of stuff yeah. i love seeing people who have you know haven't had a lot of success and then they can all of a sudden jump into something and, and buy 10 properties you know in two years i mean that to me, to be part of someone else's journey, I don't know. It's, it's ego. And I, I'll, I don't mind that, though. That's, that gives me a sense of contribution. And I feel good about it. Well, yeah, but we have to keep in mind one fundamental thing here is that ego, depending on how you look at ego, I mean, it's, it's a very complex topic. Ego is not necessarily a bad thing. Our ego is there, right. it protects us, it drives us. You know, there's a couple of fundamental things that we need to have, you know, really a fulfilling life is you have to be a contribution, number one. And, you know, depression often lives, and I'm not an expert on depression, but ultimately I do know one fundamental thing. If there isn't this big chemical imbalance, depression is often driven by navel gazing where your focus is only on right. you. And there is a, you know, a lot of data that supports the fact that if you can focus on others and not yourself, you cannot be depressed. And that's an right. interesting, these are all studies. And, and so I say that only in that as much as we look at ego and, and we look at what drives us, ego is not necessarily a bad thing. It's understanding ego and what makes you go forward. And ultimately to your point, being a contribution is such a huge part of most people's life and not everybody, but that's where the most fulfillment lives. And then the other part of it, which is a human need is significance and you can get significance yeah. through. And I don't mean that from a look at me point of view, but when you are a contribution, you feel like you are significant. You feel like you are in fact making a contribution and making a difference in the world. And at the end of the day, consciously, subconsciously call it ego, call it whatever you want. That's where a lot of fulfillment lives, especially for individuals like you and I. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're no different than me. There's a lot of value that you bring to being a contribution to supporting others and celebrating with others when they make and have some accomplishments along the way. So, you know, but this goes back to my question though, Ray, and, and I want to keep digging into it. And, and that yeah. is, is that, was that from your parents or where did you get that? Where do you think that showed up? Was it, is that how you were raised? What's your thoughts? 
I have to think there's a certain amount of nature and, and DNA or however you want to break it down. Like my father um, was into business. He tried a lot of different things. Um, I don't think my mother was particularly comfortable with those things. And some of them worked out and some of them didn't. But my, my dad's, you know, he's a strong person of faith. And I think that really can work for you and it can work against you. Sure. You know, for me, it worked for me initially because I believed. I believed what people told me that I could do anything. Now, I didn't realize that they were financially incentivized to tell me that. Right. <laughs> sure. So what happened was I became more appropriately skeptical later on. Today, I'm probably very skeptical. I don't think that's a negative thing at all. I think that's an appropriate approach to our investing. It's wisdom. It, it's wisdom. It's wisdom gained. You know? Yeah. So for me, I think that being naive initially and, and having those beliefs that I could believe in things that weren't necessarily provable allowed me to step out and do things that other people may not have had that 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 parental support to do. My dad believed in me to a fault, mm. you know, and my mom had a bit more of that, that, that skepticism and totally justified. And today, you know, both of them are investing with me with their significant others to one way or another. I think it was probably the combination of, of two really well-meaning parents. And, um, you know, there's some good fortune there as well. My, my mother was very nervous uh, investing with me. And I, I, I took it personally. Like she didn't trust me. She didn't want to do it. And I imagine that's probably how my dad felt at times, you know? Sure. sure. <laughs> but my dad, he was just always all in. He just believed in me. And I, I don't think that could be overstated. The, the, the concept of faith is a part of every world religion. And it's certainly a part of any personal development. We have to believe. And it was just the right time in my life to be believing and out there trying new things. And I got lucky to get into real estate. I could have got into, I don't know, a Tim Hortons franchise. Maybe that would have been okay. Sure. You know, you've had a lot of experience with many businesses. I didn't. I got shelled right in. So there's a lot of good fortune, I think, that, that it contributes to the success that I've had. I, I, it's crazy to think that that's not a big part of it. What I want to know is what isn't? What isn't good luck and good fortune? And uh, I, I think what I've what I've found in looking at people who found some success is really being focused. What do we want? What's it going to take to get there? And are we committed to it? And when we make that decision, we have to start taking action that goes towards that goal. And if we're going to change change course, we better have a, a good plan. And I think that's also the influence of my father and my mother helping me to mature. And, you know, Mike Wilson always told me, he said, listen, Ray, you become a speaker now. You're making all kinds of money as a speaker. He says, never lose sight of what's got you here. You can never stop investing. And, you know, that's that's the truth. You can kind of feel trapped in a speaker role. And that's not a great life if you're not loving it. I love being on the road and being out doing it. But now that my kids are at home and I've been doing this for the last five or six years, um, I'm so grateful he gave me that advice because you can make a ton of money, you know, going out and just speaking. But we continue to push forward with our real estate ventures. And real estate is, you know, it's challenging, as you know. No, there's true. lots of ups and downs. So. Well, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for that. You know, I don't want to step over, you know, for parents that are listening to this show, I think that because, you know, I was kind of brought up on the wrong side of the tracks as, you know, in, and as a kid growing up, I had the 
kind of the opposite, you know, where your dad just believed in you. My dad, not so much. You know, my mom was awesome, but I really know the psychology and understand the psychology of that and the impact of that. You know, so yeah. for parents, and I and I watch my daughter, and where, you know, when she's speaking with my grandchildren, you know, she is so supportive. She just, they just believe in themselves. And I'm watching this five and six-year-old and their level of confidence. And maybe, you know, at five and six, they're all that confident. I don't know. But at the end of the day, She's never getting in the way of having them believe in themselves either. And the point of it is, is that I think it's good guidance for any parent, you know, be aware of the limitations that we put on our kids and uh, maybe say, take some time to give it some thought and actually believe in them, show them that you believe in them. That's where they're also going to grow their confidence along the way. Yeah. There's, a, there's also another aspect of it, you know, and back to what we were talking about in terms of. I think there's a factor that people have, you know, number one focus, they go, well, they start here, they bump into it. Ah, this is too hard. I'm going to go over there. That's the hummingbird investor path of least resistance, shiny thing over there. But to your point, real estate is simple. It's not easy. People tell themselves a story that it should be easier, that mm -hmm. they should be able to make money faster, easier, because of course in social media, especially these days, the past few years, oh my it's like everybody's a millionaire and it all happened overnight. Just check out whatever, TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still stuck on one of the other points that you made with respect to as parents and what we can do. I think what I don't want to do as a parent is let my fears spill over onto my kids. Yeah. You know? No kidding. And I think if we really get honest about our fears, and that's, you know, again, I'm very fortunate because that's one of the things you do in the fourth step. You know, you do a personal inventory of yourself and you assess, you know, what are my resentments, which are obviously poison, and our fears. And, and those things, and there's a couple other things we focus on, but when I look at the fears that we have, I'm amazed at the, at the fear of failure, the fear of what if my, what if I fail in this project? What will my neighbors say? What will my parents say? What will, what will these... And, and to think that that's not a factor in our decisions and it doesn't, you know, well, be conservative. You got to be realistic. I, I had an example one time when I was working with uh, with Robert Kiyosaki and I always wanted to really be a speaker. And I was young. You know, I was relatively young. I was probably 27, 28. And someone had got sick and there was an opportunity to speak. And I always wanted to do it. I was prepared. I knew my material. I'm a decent, I'm relatively articulate, you know, so I, I was ready. But someone else came up from the U.S. Who was, who was probably a little older than me. He was probably late 30s, maybe early 40s at the time. He's come to be a good friend as we worked together. But he took the opportunity because we were supposed to split the event. And when he said, hey, well, you know, do you want me to do a bit more and take the lead on this? I said, yeah, you go ahead. And I, I was happy to let him do that. And I've looked back on that. When you think about the regrets, you know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the regrets. But I know that was a lesson that I learned. You do it anyway and fail. What's the worst that was going to happen? You know, I think that fear of failure, and we hear that from so many people all over, all over. You know, social media. Yeah. But I think we have to get serious about this. If we're not comfortable with failing, let's lower the stakes. Let's dip our toe in here. Let's make a start on something, anything, to get us some momentum. Because not like you said, not everyone has the type of parents that, that my dad was. My dad was, um, again, to a fault. He just believed in me when he had no business to believe in me. And, and that's been hard for me as well. One of the biggest and most important lessons for me has been, don't listen to what people say. Watch what they do. And 
That's been the wisdom for me to be more skeptical as I'm working with people. I think everyone can do it and they can. I do believe that, but will they? You know, and, and what, what are those factors that contribute to it? I, I love guys like Tony Robbins. He was a big help to me. I find it tough to listen to today, but what a great job he does having a huge impact on people and getting immediate results that can be followed up with consistent, simple action. I, uh, those guys were big influences for me. And I think if people are looking to improve their real estate or their relationships, being motivated and understanding a bit about our psychology that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, it's such a good point that you make as well. You know, fear of failure, I have always, not always, I've recently taken it to the next step and what I've got to back to actually what you said, which is it's not fear of failure that shuts people down. It's fear of the judgment they believe they will receive if they fail that shuts them down. Because the failure yeah. itself is irrelevant. But You're right. the judgment, you know, they think the peers, you know, what are they going to be you know, thrown out in the street and laughed at, you know, whatever the story might be. Some, you know, some have the fear of, you know, being broken, living on the street. I mean, it can, it can be that extreme. But the point is, is that often the fear of failure, to your point in real estate, it, it's rarely actually catastrophic. I mean, it can yeah. be, but it rarely is. You can lose a couple hundred grand on a million dollar deal, but still come away and go, okay, well, that cost me a couple hundred grand or it cost me a hundred grand. The whole deal didn't have to come off the rails is what I'm saying. You can usually capture it and, and save certain deals. I don't know where I'm going with that conversation, but the point is, is that the fear of failure does get in people's way, but I do agree with you that often it's just because we're worried about what others will think and what they'll say. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. They got their own stuff going on. And we need to spend some time there, I think, as individuals, because it took me a long time to realize nobody cares. Nobody, nobody's going to be there for me. Nope. I leave a job where I was, you know, the center of attention for a while. I don't hear from anybody. You know, there I am in the, in the, in the, in the spotlight for a while, loving that. It was hard on my ego. Nobody cares. You know, so I, 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 and when I say nobody, I've come to understand how valuable family is. Mm -hmm. I care what my kids think. Those That I care about. I care what my girlfriend thinks. I care what my parents think a little bit less, right? A little bit less. But, you know, it's the people who are around me that, that matter. And anything beyond that, I constantly still have to make sure that my actions are not being governed by what somebody else thinks about me on the road or wherever it's, it's, it's bad habits for me. And I'm, you know, I guess I get kind of uh, down in the weeds on this, but it's so important to me that I maintain good psychological health, making good decisions in the small areas of life will translate into making good investment decisions and good relationship decisions. And I think having that, that impressed upon me and to go back to what you were saying earlier, having for me a sponsor and good mentors, I know you've had the same, what is the value of that? I spend stupid amounts of money on people who've done it before. I am happy to pay a consultant. I bought an RV when I was traveling and speaking because I wanted to drive across the country and be with my family. I didn't want to give that up. And it was a great experience. But what did I do? You know, I paid someone to show us how to drive the thing. Oh, thank goodness I didn't have the, the Chevy Chase moment, you know, where I, <laughs> oh, I got this. Yeah. You know, but like having people who've got experience, I want to leverage that because I hate the pain. I don't like the pain of failing. And as a result, I know I improve my odds of success when I'm able to work with anybody who's gone before me. And I'm amazed how people are willing to freely give of their time, 
especially when we show up and we pay attention and we do what's being advised. You know, it's uh, it's amazing how many opportunities are out there when we're ready to listen and then put some things into action. Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, aside from the education we provide and the research and all the things that the Real Estate Investment Network has done over the years, ultimately, the community is really what it's about. At the end of the day, we see that those amongst us have taken action. They are achieving goals and results that we want to achieve. And, you know, there's a, I don't know if you call it a, I don't know if it's a quote or cliche, I don't even know where I got it from, but confidence is rarely owned. It's almost always borrowed. And we borrow it from others around us. And we gain our confidence because somebody else believes in us or somebody's alongside. And we know that we're in this together. So we're, we're really borrowing the confidence from others. And when we put ourselves in a culture, in a community, in an environment to succeed, then we actually can pull it off. You know, a very basic example, and you've had this experience and, you know, over the years I've trained a lot and, you know, I'll go and I'm working out. I've, I've had literally trainers that I've worked out with for years. And uh, I always remember that how often I said, dude, I'm not lifting that. And there's no way I can pull it off. And, you know, Wano looks at me, he goes, just lift it. You'll be fine. And you know something, one more, one more, one more. And it's like, no, I can't do it. You can do it. I know you yeah. can do this. And it, it's, it's interesting. It got to be that I worked out with him so often and he got so confident in what my body could pull off that I almost believed, I had to believe him more than I believed myself. My body's saying, you know, it's, it's <laughs> saying bullshit. You can't do this in my brain. And he's going, yeah, okay, don't kid yourself. You can do this. And it's that way, I think, in anything that we do, when we put ourselves in that environment, that's where we gain our confidence from those around us that support us and can encourage us and actually see us through a set of filters that we have. Like they don't have the same filters we do. They don't see yeah. our limitations the way we see our limitations. You know, I'd hear salespeople talk about that all the time for the purpose of getting you into a group where you spend 50 grand. Right? <laughs> right. Like, oh yeah. Interesting. Right. Okay. Yeah. But it works. Mm-hmm. The support group that exists with people who are like-minded, trying to do the same thing and just doing it. And, and that was a, you know, a really great thing for me. And I remember I worked with, you know, I worked with Keyspire and it was a great opportunity there. Uh, we kind of, we kind of looked at what you guys are doing at Rain and we're like, what's wrong with these guys? Their price points are ridiculously low. And and I, and I remember saying, we talked about this a little bit. If, if your group had an opportunity to take and spend 15 grand and they're able to go out and buy a, 20 unit building. What's the value on that? You and I both know realtors love them. We got great people in our networks, but at the end of the day, we have to advocate for ourselves. We have to negotiate. And, and people have seen that you've seen it where you, you go out, you tell people, no, go back to them and tell them you're not interested. And uh, all of a sudden 50,000 comes off the price point. There's just so much value in, in that support. And I think that, I don't know about you, but I felt at times in my career that it's just so much money when people fail. And I just had to forget that that's not my responsibility. If you're serious and you want to do something, finding somebody who will do it with you is so valuable. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's where you were going with respect to having those positive influences, but it's tough. If you go and you go to a presentation and then you go home and talk to your uncle who's a realtor, who's like, yeah, I tried that. That doesn't work. And then you talk to someone, 
all that negativity is it's enough to stop you right in your tracks and so mm. that's again i was a bit naive i got i drank the kool-aid i dove in i spent the money you know i spent 25 grand on a credit card that we didn't have and they delivered for me you know and it was uh it wasn't perfect no teacher is right but if we're ready to jump in and i think that's what's exciting about this time right now prices are going down rent is staying the same or going up so at least in the buy and hold space what a great time to invest and if we don't think it is maybe that's fear yeah, you 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 and I both know. You know when it's interesting about how market psychology works. We've been at the effect of it ourselves, but we see it. And you know when the market's going crazy, everybody's a real estate genius. You know, think about what was happening back in you know the early part of this year, both U.S. and Canada, where prices were off the charts. They're breaking records. Everybody's getting rich. You know, we're buying these pre-builds. We're doing this, and they're going up a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. And you know, on paper, at least many are are making a lot of money. Now, interest rates start to go up a little quicker than people anticipated. Market starts to cool off. And how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I'm just going to wait till the market slows down a little bit, then I'll get in, right? right. And it's like, okay, now the market is slowing down. Everybody's going, no, this is crazy. Like the, it's, yeah. there's a bubble, it's going to crash and burn. And it's just such difficult psychology to embrace and understand what's at play here. And we look at this market, you and I look at this market and go, Man, there's as many opportunities coming our way as there was back in April of 2020 when everybody thought the sky was falling for sure this time. You know, right. You know, it's yeah. really going off the rails this time. And we, you know, the team and I at the, back in April of 2020, we stated time and time again, there's going to be more opportunities coming our way than we've ever seen before in a lifetime. We don't know all what they are, but this it just plays out. It has to be a pandemic. And of course, real estate went on a tear, as did many other things. And we had no big anticipation of what that was going to be, other than we knew these opportunities were going to exist. Right now, the yeah. sky is falling again, starting yeah. to fall again. You know, the negativity is, you know, really, really out there. And, you know, if you stay, if you get on social media at all, you're just seeing that the world is coming to an end. And you and I both know that this is where the opportunities exist. This is the time to really get educated, start having conversations, really look at it because otherwise you're going to be chasing it. You're going to be chasing it and yeah. trying to catch up. That's my view. Certainly. I, and I think, you know, from, from where I'm looking at it, this is a, this is the best spot I've seen for real estate in years. Like I'm so excited about this genuinely. Like I, I I've been sitting on the sidelines. So now I have an opportunity to get back in and prices could drop further. What do I care? My yield has improved dramatically. Here's what people don't understand. When you invest and you buy a, whatever you buy, call it a million dollar property, and you put 20% down, and the market drops 15%, you just lost 75% of your capital, right? That's a problem when you're investing with no cash flow. But if I do the same thing, and I've got strong cash flow, what do I care? I'd like it to go up, obviously. But if my goal is to create income to sustain my lifestyle, why do I care? But I couldn't get that six months ago. And right now, people are having problems. And I, I, it's not my, you know, my great feeling in life to take advantage of people's problems. But the reality is, when people have problems, they're motivated. I, I always, we always talk about that. You want to work with people who are motivated. 
They want to do a deal. They need to do a deal. And when people are running the other way, you said it. It is the psychology. It, it fear drives us so much. And I'm just not prepared to let that happen to myself anymore. I've got to be stronger. I've got to have more resolve and take courage. And, and, and we do it with our children, right? We raise them right. Why aren't we doing it for ourselves? If the prices are better and the and, and the and the rent remains the same and we're in it for cash flow, why is now a bad time to invest? Interest rates going up? Okay, factor that in. What does a six and a half percent interest rate look like? Okay, it looks like you still have lots of cash flow here. And you've got a seller who's maybe willing to hold or do something creative. Like that was the stuff that I love. My mentor who spent a lot of time with me, creative financing, you know, learning how to structure things. Maybe you're into a different country, you know, it's all that kind of stuff is going to create opportunities for people. Now is the time to be investing. That's why I also didn't do a lot of training over the past three years. What am I going to teach someone how to do? Win a bidding war? Like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's insane. Now is when we can get creative. Well, now it's going to get, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's just going to get better. I mean, when we look at, you know, of course, Rain has always said, buy for cash flow, buy for cash flow. I mean, to nauseam, we go buy for cash flow. Yeah. And if you have to repurpose that, if you have to put a suite in it, whatever you have to do, get that property into a zone of cash flow. And, you know, right now what's happening, of course, with interest rates going up, affordability is becoming an issue as it was when prices were high and interest rates were low, affordability was an issue. Now prices are come on, are coming off a bit and interest rates are going up. It's still an issue. Affordability yeah. is still an issue. But of course, what yeah. is that doing? It's driving the rental market. We have a very limited supply of uh in Canada of rental product. I know in, in many parts of the U.S. they're having exactly the same thing is happening. One major difference, if I could interrupt. Yeah. One major difference is, and this is, look, I, I, the past couple of years has been tough years for me and, and realizing some things about where we live and how, how we operate. Sure. Um, the freer market, I wouldn't say the U.S. is completely a free market, but it's freer. And we tend to invest in red states because I believe with that fiscal policy, like, if you can't raise your rents, that's a problem in this environment. Well, of course it is. But we talked about just briefly about this. We've got definitely got Alberta on the map in terms yes, of what's sir. happening in, in Canada, even even uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. You know, the BC and Ontario are the big culprits when it comes to yep. rent, rent control. You know what I'm scared about, though? I'm scared about what I'm seeing happen where we're trying to solve an affordability problem by keeping things low. All that's going to do, ironically, is stop people from building, which is going to create a supply <laughs> problem. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And so for me, when I can go to a state that says, hey, if they don't pay their rent, you can get a court date in 11 days and make a plan. I don't need to throw someone out. That's not my goal. But if you don't have the stick, yeah, you don't got have some. any leverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. You've got to have that. So, I mean, for me, I like the freer markets. And I think it's a huge advantage. And that's why if you're going to be investing in Canada, I'd like to be in places like Alberta. And there's, yeah. you know, we've talked about that. There's good things about Alberta and not. But what I do like is the freer market. Because if inflation is running at seven or six or seven percent, whatever you want to call it, who even knows, right? Really. And you can only raise your rents 1.8% or 2%. Something's going to break. Why would you do that? <laughs> Something's going to break. And then ultimately, of course, what happens is, is that it drives rents even higher at some point when somebody moves out. The next thing you know, rents are going through the roof. Well, we're seeing that. We're seeing huge increases in Toronto, for example. I think the most recent stat I saw was 20% increase in rents. So yeah. these, these things are actually you know coming to but, fruition. 
But you know what the plan is? You know what the plan is. Let's go ahead and do what they do in Quebec. Whatever the last rent was, you gotta, you gotta, you can only raise it a certain amount off the last rent. This kind of controlling the market is, is, I just, that's why I love Don't even US. get me started getting, yeah, 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 I got you. You know, it fires me up when I look at, you know, the bureaucracy that's trying to drive this market, you know, and the decision makers aren't at the effect of the decisions they make. They don't have any idea. Some of them are career politicians. They literally don't know how to do the math or even understand the concept of investment or real estate or cash flow or Really, it is just that. They're checking a box, and that is a little bit frustrating, to say the the very least. I'm trying to get to a place where I understand where they're coming from. I think there's an intention that people want to have more equality of outcome. I'm just a capitalist, though. Yeah. I, I believe it's incentive, and, I, and I, I've seen it over and over again. I never wanted a handout. Like, if you can help me when I get started, yeah, I'll take the help for sure. But it's a privilege to be able to go out and work and, and contribute. Yeah. I really do believe that. And I think that everyone feels better when they're able to be more more useful that way. And I, I these are things that concern me about the direction of our country. And I, I think that a lot of people, even people who are left of center, uh, have some concerns about that as well. So, uh, you know, we need... We need we need to do some things in our next election and, and move things, I think, in the right way, not to be totally political. Right? Well, well, yeah, I know. And and of course, yeah, I mean, and even we you say left of center, even centers moved left. I mean, it's just it's such a, a weird time that we're in. And, uh, you know, the observation is there. It's interesting, you know, Stephanie and I and my wife. Now, Stephanie's a, a mental performance coach. She's an Olympic class mental performance coach. She's been to three, uh, three different Olympics, has worked in professional and Olympic world-class sports for 25 years. And the only reason I say all that is what we've come to understand is that with what's going on in the world, back to even taking action and investing in real estate or being an entrepreneur or whatever is so much boils down to our mindset and developing and being aware of how we're thinking, the filters that we're looking at the world through. To your point, you said something that was really interesting. I'm just trying to see how the you know, how there's, how they see it, you know, like you're, you're actually, we can take a stand and go, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, but go view it from their kind of perspective. And it actually can shift how you look at, well, how is there a different approach to the communication with them? Is there a different way to look at it? And that takes some mental fortitude, if you will, and a little bit of wisdom as well, that, you know, there is a time where we live into certain ideologies that, we have to step back from and say, okay, well, let's just listen to the other argument a little bit closer. What you just described is what my mentor went over with me with sellers. I have to understand where are they coming from? What do they want? What's motivating them? Mm -hmm. They're not dumb, not stubborn. Maybe they are a little bit, but that's not usually yeah. what it is. They have a set of objectives that may be very different from mine. Can we find a way to get them what they want and get what we want? And that's what's exciting to me right now. There's motivation. People need our help to be able to, maybe they want to liquidate. They're in a stage in their life, they don't want to deal with this anymore. And they missed the top. What can we do? We're going to see opportunities for some, you know, seller financing options and different strategies that, uh, you know, you and I have seen that worked really well 20 years ago. This is the time where it comes back. And the less of our capital we have to use, the better the return on investment. This is an awesome time. I mean, I'm, I'm and I'm not here just being an optimist. That's that's a fact. It you is, know? and there's history to 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 illustrate it. There's proven history to illustrate it. And you know, to your point, right now, and in, in in any environment, in any negotiation, and certainly 
you know, when you're talking to a motivated vendor, enter the conversation where they're at, not where you're at. And that really is the trick, isn't it? Is yeah. to go into the conversation and enter it where they're at, not from where you're at. And that's what actually opens up more conversation and then discussion and then ultimately negotiation. Care. Give a crap about what they want. And it's so, this is why I, I mean, I know I go on about it, but the personal development and the understanding of, of, the human psychology has been the only thing it works in every industry. I've been able to go into business. I have no experience in, you know, and, and provide, you know, really good support and some consulting. And it's really because I can listen and I can understand what it is that people want and need and try and figure out a way to get that. I don't have to give it to them, but let's at least try. Maybe there's a deal to be had. Mm-hmm. 100%. So, Ray, we could go on and have this conversation for a long time, and I've really enjoyed it, but we do have to wind down. We've actually even gone a little bit longer than I was going to with you because I know you were slightly under the weather, but you've... <laughs> you got me all worked up. <laughs> yeah, you pulled it off brilliantly. So let's go through, uh, you know, as we wind things down, I like to go through what I refer to as rapid fire questions that are never rapid fire, but we always have them anyways. And uh, you ready? Yes, sir. Favorite inspirational quote? Do you have one? I don't even have one. Just do it comes to mind. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. They're kind of applicable. Favorite book that you've read or made a big difference or that you gift? Um, I give a lot of people Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. It had a profound effect upon me. I'll give a second one. A good friend of mine, John Kuypers, he read a book, What's Important Now? And it's just a bit about his journey to really figure out what was important. And, and yeah, it was a great book. Cool. And favorite tune or favorite band? I've been, uh, I love the Can You Hear Me Knocking by the Rolling, Stone, Rolling Stones. That gets me going. <laughs> That's awesome. Favorite movie? That I your like kids Blow. aren't. Well, good. Most, most parents go, whatever my kid's watching, but go ahead. What's your favorite movie? I like Blow with Johnny Depp. Oh, Tom yeah, that was, that was a good movie. Uh, I'm not the biggest Johnny Depp fan, but that was a good that was a good film. That's an oldie. Uh, do you have a favorite Netflix or streaming series that you're watching? I don't. I'm trying to think if I've watched anything recently that was any good. I haven't watched a lot recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your room, your desk, or your car? What do you clean first? My desk. You like a clean desk, eh? I like if I get a clean desk and, I, and things are simple, I can uh, I can I can get productive. Okay, so you can think clearer that way. Got it. No yeah. clutter. No clutter in your world. Not me. Okay. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? If heaven exists, what do I want God to say? I mean, we, we always hear the well done thing, but what do I really want to say? You know, welcome home. You know, I mean, if, if that exists and we got an all loving being, uh, our father, you know, it would be great to just get home and embrace. I mean, that would feel wonderful, I think. Fantastic. And Ray, what are you grateful for today? You know, uh, I'm grateful that I, I have uh, a lot of gratitude in my life. It is, the, it is the engine that helps me to go forward. So I couldn't list one thing. I am grateful for kid, my kids, and they still talk to me. I'm grateful for a great, where I live. I'm grateful for my girlfriend and a wonderful woman who knows how to take responsibility for you know, her actions and, and can admit when she's wrong and, and help me admit when I'm wrong. You know, I'm grateful for the opportunities I have working with people who struggle with alcoholism. I'm grateful for, you know, our, our conversations. I have some meaningful, meaningful relationships today. So I, those are probably the top of the list. 
Those are, that's a great one. That's a, that's a great answer. Just grateful for the fact that I can be grateful, you know, is yeah. pretty powerful, right? Yeah. Some people can't say that. Well, I am grateful to have had the opportunity to have you on the show today. Like you, I'm always grateful for my family and uh, my lovely bride and uh, grateful for the opportunity to do what I do on a regular basis. So, Ray, thank you for joining me on the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. And I know that we'll be having uh, future conversations. So look forward to it. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time... Patrick out.